Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Clear Motive Marketing. Full transparency, folks. I am one of the co-founders of Clear Motive Marketing. I have had the privilege and the amazing opportunity to be involved with my current business partner, Chad Croker, since 2010. And it has been a fantastic ride and just an amazing, amazing journey. But I'm coming here today not as a co-founder, but as a client. Over a year ago, I brought the idea of the podcast to the team, presented the challenges, presented the opportunity, presented why I was excited about it, and they worked with me to create a plan. We built a strategy, we built the brand, we built the website, and they helped me execute, and they helped me execute day in and day out as we are constantly going live with, with new, new episodes. They also were a huge help in building the audience, which can be the most challenging things, whether you're a company with a product or a service or just a new idea that you need to get out there. So we've grown organically from over 200 downloads last December to over 2,000 this December, which is an all-time record for the show, something we're really proud of, and I couldn't have done it without the Clear Motive team backing me at every step of the way. They specialize in helping brands that operate in fast-paced, highly competitive industries, which, let's be honest, is, is everyone these days, to deliver more consistently and more effectively day in and day out, something that we all know can be an incredible challenge in marketing with the pace of the always-on mindset. With offices and teams in both Calgary and Toronto, they work to make clients better marketers. So if you need a new website, a new brand, or simply a new efficient way to produce and deliver and get your get your creative in market and get connected with your customers, give us a call and let's have a good old-fashioned chat. Check out our work and our case studies at www.clearmotive.ca. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to George Ardiz and Jason Schultz. How are you boys? Great. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, Spectrum H2, uh, hydrogen. This is an interesting conversation for me. It's something I haven't had anybody on the show really focusing on. Hydrogen, the role it plays in Alberta, the future that it plays even on a global scale when we talk about moving away, moving towards a greener greener future, if we want to, and want to put it that way. So I was really excited to have you guys on, one, to showcase, one, what you're doing, but also give the audience a real chance, and me, first audience of one, to, shelf, to really understand what it means, what it is, and all the things that it entails. So with that as the, uh, as, as the, as the framework, let's start from the top. What's, tell us what Spectrum H2 is all about. We'll get into your guys' background, and then we'll, uh, we'll let it unroll from there. Yeah, great, Tyler. So, so what Spectrum H2 is about is about helping in a transition to a low-carbon economy. Um, Alberta is a perfect place to do that. We've got inexpensive um, methane natural gas. We've got abundant uh, zones to sequester CO2, carbon dioxide. And uh, we think we can produce some of the cheapest um, hydrogen on the market, blue hydrogen. And, and we'll get into what the colors uh, mean in a, in a short time here. But really, uh, we're helping transition into a low-carbon environment, and uh, and we th- we feel Alberta's got you know the leading uh, requirements to do that, both from a geology point of view, uh, as well as from a people point of view. Right? We've got skilled engineers. Uh, we've got a lot of people uh, who right now are looking for work. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we think we can help on the job side as well, and really kickstart the hydrogen industry in uh, in Alberta. We can do that in a number of different ways. We can do that by um, storing CO2 underground and sequestering it indefinitely to reduce our carbon footprint. Uh, and we can also provide hydrogen as an alternative uh, to burning uh, carbon-rich fuel uh, and reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, uh, and, cur- and one- Sorry, Kurt, just to cut you off for a second. Um, why now? Is it just the economies have reached a point or is that this demand for better environmental choices? Like when I'm reading your website, like why weren't, why haven't we been doing this? Cause it seems like as it's presented is a pretty solid idea. <laughs> so, so the first time I got into hydrogen, believe it or not, was in 1999 and I invested in Ballard Industries. Um, okay. I did make some money. There was a big hydrogen start back then, uh, but there's really no, no, no government support back then. Right. So and the fuel cells were very um, simple back then. Uh, so so technology and the change in the fuel cell systems, as well as uh, the incentive from the government point of view to really kickstart this new energy transition, is what's happening today. And it started happening a, a couple of years ago. And you know California is leading the America, but really in Europe they've been doing this for um, you know a decade. Uh, so there was a real big push in in Europe. Um, now China is getting into it. Japan is getting into it. Australia is getting into it. 
And uh, we, we want to push Alberta uh, to get into it as well. And um, we think we uh, the Spectrum H2 has the right people and, and the right resources uh, to uh, kickstart, kickstart that industry. So I appreciate that we've had, a, like a lot of technologies or a lot of innovations, there's waves. It comes out. I rem- I think I was a shareholder of Ballard back in the 90s when that was a big, and then it just petered out and never. So we're just through one of our cycles. And I'm assuming the pressure around ESG, the pressure around you know lowering our, our, our emissions over the next year and some of the aggressive goals that are in place. So this is a combination of like perfect storm, but in the right direction to make this viable specifically here. Like you said, the rest of the world has been onto this for a while, a little bit ahead. And we've, and is the only reason we were behind just because it didn't, the government wasn't there. There wasn't those incentives for people to take those initial risks. And, and I think just to clarify that statement I made, I think we were ahead on the fuel cell side, right? Mainly through okay. Ballard. But we lagged behind on the hydrogen production side. Uh, and what's really pushing that forward today is the uh, the federal and the provincial uh, government incentives that are being provided, both on a subsidy point of view, right, where, where new technologies and new approaches are being subsidized by the governments, but also um, from a uh, the point of view where, where you know, there's a lot of pressure, ESG, environmental pressure, right, for companies to move to a cleaner uh, environment. So I think um, that um, as well is, is – is, uh, sorry, let me back up. But I, I think, you know, some of the carbon credits that are being um, traded today where people who sequester or who dispose of carbon get a credit that they can trade and make money off those credits – I think that's really kick-started the sequestration side where, where carbon is sequestered underground. So, for example, today, if a group uh, disposes of CO2 underground, they get a certain amount of money. And so it's about $40 per ton that they, sequest- that they get for sequestering carbon dioxide. So um, there's a revenue stream there that we can get from uh, sequestering CO2. And I, re- I think that's what really kick-started the, uh, the industry okay. from the sequestration point of view. And Tyler, so maybe, just to explain, so so, yeah. so we produce, we want to produce blue hydrogen, and and all hydrogen, no matter what the uh, adjective is that describes it, uh, is hydrogen. It's two molecules of hydrogen element number one on the periodic table. Uh, it's all the same. But you know, as human beings, we like to categorize things, right? And, and pigeonhole <laughs> we do. <things. laughs> uh, <laughs> and so there's a system that was derived where you know the gray hydrogen is is where hydrogen is produced and the CO two is emitted to the atmosphere. And of course, that causes you know greenhouse gas emissions and global warming. Uh, blue hydrogen is what we do, and and that's where we capture the CO two and we sequester it underground. So only hydrogen is produced. And a number of groups are working on um, green hydrogen right now, and it is being produced um, primarily in Quebec at this point. But it's where uh solar or wind um is used to produce the hydrogen by splitting water molecules so take the h2 away from the o in the water molecule and you've got hydrogen and oxygen and uh okay but you're using a renewable energy source to, to to facilitate that process like you said wind or solar to create the electricity needed it takes power to create power also right uh, okay Right. And Quebec is, you know, they're well positioned geographically because they've got a lot of hydro dams, right? They've got a lot of water resources that they use to generate this new. What does Alberta have? Well, we have a lot of inexpensive natural gas that we can use and a lot of reservoirs store the CO2. And so you and and try to lead the charge on the inexpensive side uh, to the pricing of hydrogen. But also we have a very, I've heard you loud and clear, a really strong kind of uh, geological infrastructure to be able to focus on the, the sequestration piece of the puzzle. Because you cleave the CO2 off, you have to put it, you know, the whole point is you have to put it somewhere or it just slips back. And gray hydrogen is the most abundant right now, right? I think I read 70% or something of the hydrogen produces is, is sits in that gray category, which essentially means it's a polluter. Is that, I'm, again, I'm oversimplifying for the, for the audience, made for myself. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think in Alberta, 96% of the uh, hydrogen that we produce is gray. Um, and, you know, we want to okay. change that. We, we want to drop that number down and, and start getting some, some uh, blue hydrogen on the market. Okay. And natural gas is the primary input 
for for creating that blue hydrogen just thinking of the process like if we go back to step one yeah like for the audience perspective let's walk through and we'll get to how it actually gets utilized in market so we start with natural gas we put it through the process of separating it and cleaving off the o2 and then co2 and then then dealing with it in an appropriate way that doesn't cause a pollution and then we're left with this abundant blue hydrogen which now becomes the new fuel source that's exactly right. And so, you know, one of our secret sauces, I won't say too much on this podcast. But <laughs> I was like, oh, this is what everybody secret- leans in right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, one of our secret sauces, uh, which I won't get into too much detail on it, is just the vertical integration of that system, right? Uh, okay. Where we, in some cases, uh, you know, we're looking at a number of different hubs across Western Canada. We've got uh, some proposed in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and just recently uh, we're looking into BC as well. So one of the secret sauces is vertical integration, where we, in some cases, produce our own gas from existing well bores. So we don't have to necessarily drill wells or build pipelines. We use the existing infrastructure. So we take that natural gas and we run it through a a hydrogen plant that's called a a steam methane reformer, an SMR plant. And uh, that that takes the natural gas, mixes it with steam, and out the back end of that plant comes blue hydrogen uh, or hydrogen and CO2. We capture the CO2 uh, and then it, we, we pump that CO2 through existing pipelines, existing well bores, and dispose of it underground into a depleted reservoir. So that's that's really our secret sauce is the efficiency uh, with doing that locally, right, all in one spot. Uh, we, we don't have to build, you know, a 100, and, 100 plus kilometer pipeline. We don't have to drill a, a ton of new wells to do this. Everything's existing and we just uh, use what we've got, right? We use the infrastructure that's there. And that allows us to produce uh, cheap uh, hydrogen. And when we have the province full of abandoned wells and we have a province full of drilling for the last 80 to 100 years, I can really start to understand the, why we are so well positioned compared to other parts of the world or even other parts of the country. Yeah, that's a so, great point. And, and we're actually looking at the Orphan Well Fund, and, and we're thinking about uh, taking some of those wells and using them for CO2 injection. So yeah, we are we are using what we've got to minimize our costs and our environmental well, footprint. Anytime you can take someone's liability and turn it into your asset, that's a really solid platform to start from. Like You're, you're appreciative to get the resource, they're appreciative to get it off their books. I, I'm oversimplifying, but that's an interesting kind of business model when, yeah, give us your tired, give us your abandoned, give us your weak, we'll turn it into something of value. <laughs> I really like that. Um, so you've got the hydrogen now. We've got this new, very clean fuel source. We've we've capitalized on this 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 un, the subterranean asset we have of storage and ultimately putting carbon back in, redepositing it after we've kind of cleaved it out. What happens with the hydrogen? What's the infrastructure look like to? Because obviously we're moving into vehicles, like anything that's going to consume energy. Just thinking about like walk me through kind of that process and where we are because that feels like there's a lot of adoption required there to have vehicles that are able to function and operate on this fuel. Yeah, and the vehicles, the transportation side is, is one side, one, one part of the full equation, right? Okay. Um, up front, there's a lot of groups right now, petrochemical groups, fertilizer groups, right, to produce fertilizer, uh, that use hydrogen as a feedstock in their process. So our our plan here is to uh, to build these uh, hydrogen generating hubs adjacent to some of those big industrial users. Uh, we would deliver hydrogen from our plant, you know, 100 feet away to their plant so that they can use blue hydrogen instead of using their existing gray hydrogen uh, through that uh, manufacturing process, whether it's petrochemical or fertilizer or whatever it may be. Um, and then we would size our hydrogen plant uh, to allow us to produce more hydrogen in the future. And then when the transportation industry kicks off, then we would you know, ramp up our production a little bit and, uh, and deliver via trucks um, the hydrogen wherever it needs to go. We, we've already got some incoming calls from groups uh, well beyond Western Canada. And again, for confidentiality purposes, I can't you know say I, I too much that. here. But we've got uh, groups internationally who uh, we're looking at um, delivering hydrogen to, right, uh, via trucks. So even though trucking is not the most efficient way to transport hydrogen, it does make money for us. And okay. it does allow our, our uh, customers to sell a discount to uh, you know the, the market pricing of hydrogen in the area that they're selling it. 
So yeah, initially it would be supplied directly to an industrial user. Uh, then when the time comes, expand our plant slightly, and it doesn't take any more capital. It means you know just opening the valve on the uh, on the natural gas inflow a little bit more, and uh, and producing more hydrogen. Um, we could also most of our hubs are located along uh, transportation corridors. Uh, it's just the nature of where the, uh, the petrochemical and fertilizer groups are located. And then, you know, we could set up our own stations on the retail side, and that's where, where Jason comes in, right? He's uh, he's our guru on the marketing side, and uh, we, we produce, well, I guess I, I'll produce the hydrogen and then transfer it over to him, and off he goes with uh, the I, 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 I appreciate that. So, Jason, from your perspective, <laughs> thinking about... Uh, well, it just makes sense. You've got these large facilities that are, of course, going to be positioned on transportation corridors because they also need that. But I love this vertically integrated about, you know, you're selling it out one side to fuel and to be transported. You're selling it the other side to be utilized and turned into a product. You know, from a from a geography perspective, are we, because one of Canada's challenges, we're so spread out. So when you think about that, how, fe- like, I guess, is that a barrier in terms of ge- our geography or is it the fact that we can actually get a lot more coverage because you've got these diverse hubs that are going to be obviously starting here and working out from Alberta? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question, Tyler. It's definitely the latter. It's definitely the latter. As far as we can get the molecule economically uh, through a transportation uh, corridor, whether that's by truck or or in a different mm-hmm. form, uh, that's as far as we can get it, right? So whether all the way to BC or all the way to East Coast or all the way South, whatever we can kind of get that molecule economically as far as we can. And whether that goes into, say, an industrial heating network, whether that's used for a fuel cell or whether that's into the existing mm-hmm. retail hydrogen uh, network that's in you know, BC today and Montreal, uh, it's there today. So. So you guys are plugging into that infrastructure. It, it, sorry, just from a transportation perspective, because obviously we we're we're in Alberta right now, and we've we all know the, the the pipeline conversation that's been happening for multiple years and is ongoing. Is trucking the best way to do that? Does it move by rail? Does it move by pipeline? Does it follow some of the same kind of parameters as our current resource challenge? What we're have in terms of export and movement? Yeah, great question. Today, there is no hydrogen that moves by rail. Today in Canada, it's all by truck. So pipelines are for hydrogen are not in existence today. Uh, but the best way, like uh, George had said, is by truck today. So whether that's by liquid form or by gas form, depending on the volume, and there's other properties that need to be, uh, you know, assessed when you're moving that kind of product. But uh, to buy truck is the best way today. And is it a high? Is it a high? You know, is it a high risk product to move? Is there any concerns, kind of, from a stability or just risk of something going sideways? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no different than the current distillate gasoline products that are moved today. Okay, right, no different. So, so trans, same, it hauls and transforms in the same kind of um, way that it has for a gasoline. Okay, so not, not not no new no new means or new no way no new way of doing it required. We're tapping is so what I'm hearing is like the more I'm hearing you guys talk is there's already an infrastructure well in place. So curious if I'm a large. Um, user of gray hydrogen now in a large like manufacturing fluid. I'm doing, we'll just pick fertilizer and we'll do that space. Is there a lot, do I have to do a lot to convert over to use blue hydrogen or is it a fairly straightforward in terms of like the infrastructure that's required right down to how we burn it and how we use it? Is there a big retrofit required or is it a fairly easy transition? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of the plants already have SMR units, so those steam methane reformers that are essentially hydrogen plants. So they've already got those okay. uh, those plants in house, right? So they're producing their own hydrogen. Um, they're not capturing their CO two; they're emitting it into the environment. So what we would do is we would, you know, we would potentially set up a capture unit to, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a piece of equipment that takes the uh, the CO two out of their uh, their exhaust gas, if you will. Okay. And, and we could capture that and, and sequester it right there on site. Um, so we would we wouldn't necessarily be generating or creating hydrogen. We would be capturing their their carbon dioxide emissions and sequestering it underground. Now, some other sites we would be building an SMR and we would be pipelining it right into their plant, and they would take that pure hydrogen product and use it for their internal processes, for their manufacturing or fertilizer, whatever it may be. Uh, and we would sequester underground the CO two coming off of our. But but it's not it's not difficult because we're we, we're essentially providing them with one of their ingredients right to make their product. Mm-hmm. Now the other thing that we're planning on doing is actually blending the hydrogen into an existing natural gas stream. So um, this is really interesting, and, and there's a huge uh, potential for growth. Uh, you know, doing this um, right now. ATCO is planning on blending hydrogen up to 5% in the the municipal uh, distribution lines up in Fort Saskatchewan. 
and uh, there's no changes required from a pipeline point of view or from, you know, residence furnaces or hot water mm-hmm. tanks or whatever you will. Uh, it's just straight blending of hydrogen into the existing natural gas distribution lines. So that's one of the things that we're looking at um, where, you know, we can blend up to, let's say, 20% hydrogen into an existing natural gas uh, pipeline that, that goes right into their burners, into their heaters, and uh, allow, you know, big companies to heat their warehouses or allow, allow um, pulp and paper groups to uh, to um, burn a mix of hydrogen and uh, natural gas uh, in their burning applications, right, whatever they need heat for. And, and the, the interesting thing that that does is it, it displaces natural gas. It displaces that carbon stream, right? And uh, it allows them to show the government of Alberta, which has a a system that rewards uh, a reduction in emissions. So it allows them to show the government, hey, look, we're reducing our emissions here by blending uh, Spectrum H2's hydrogen into our our, uh, feedstock. So give us some credits and they'll they'll get the credits for that. So that's that's how, that's the, right, for groups to use hydrogen over natural gas and reduce their uh, carbon emissions. And you referenced earlier some of the other jurisdictions around the world where that blended approach is happening like 20, 30, Japan's at 30%. I think I saw somewhere it said 50%. That, that When you refer to that, that's what you're meaning. Like there's companies, there's countries that are, that are advanced in terms of how much they're blending that in. Is there a price? Uh, you know, I'm, the end, I'm the end user and right now I'm getting 100% of my stream from natural gas and all of a sudden I bring 20% of my stream on coming from hydrogen. Does my cost go up? Does my cost stay the same? But then I get my offset. I'm just again. You, sooner or later, you got to follow the pennies. And so, what's that look like? Is it am I am I paying a little bit more? But then my offset makes sense in terms of the government. And back to you, you know, why incentives are so important to, to fund these changes. Just curious of the real nuts and bolts of the of the financial model of making that switch. If I'm a a big you know hundred thousand square foot warehouse. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. Um, some of the answer is part of our secret sauce, but okay, <laughs> what I fair. what I can say, Tyler, what I can say is that you know th- there's a, a very exciting um, market right now. Hydrogen is in its infancy, but there's a lot of excited groups. You know, it's a proven technology. The stuff that we're using is all proven. There's no you know research, um, you know, high risk uh, type of equipment okay. or or anything that we're using. So it, it's you know tested. It's proven, and uh, and because of that, we can uh, we have. I don't want to, you know, I'm going to knock on wood when I have the ability to raise a significant amount of money. Uh, We're talking with some of the major banks in Canada and a lot of uh, mid-sized capital groups, um, private equity groups as well. And they're really backing us from a financial side. So what that does is it allows us to use our capital to build the plant 100% spectrum, right? We pay for it. We get it up and running whether it's a CO2 capture plant or an SMR and a CO2 capture plant. Um, okay. It allows us to pay 100% of the capital costs. And then what we would do is, is share, remember I said those carbon credits? Well, we would share mm-hmm. those carbon credits, that revenue stream that we would get from the government for sequestering the CO2. We would share that with our uh, with you know the group that's that's adjacent to us, whether it's a you know pulp and paper or petrochemical or fertilizer group, we would share that revenue stream with them. So so really, they're they're not paying anything to have us capture their their um, their CO two, and you know we would charge them for hydrogen right on on a per unit uh, basis, but we would be able to create an additional uh, cash flow stream for them. Right from mm-hmm. the carbon credits, so that's what exci- yeah. what's exciting for them is they don't have to pay the capital cost to, to build the unit, and they get an additional revenue source. Um, the CO or sorry, the the hydrogen that they pay for uh, kind of displaces the natural gas that they pay for. So I wouldn't okay. say it's a wash, right? But you know, it, it's not much of a difference. Let's just say. Okay. So that's that's the incentive. We pay for it all, and we give them a, a, a revenue stream as well. So if the government subsidies weren't there, or is, I'm picking apart here because my brain is going, hmm. So the government withdrew their subsidies. It's two years from now. Is there a point where the subsidies are there to get us going, to get this commercially viable, and then there will be a certain point where the model will work without those subsidies? I'm always curious, if those if those got pulled away, and I appreciate incentivizing the behavior you want to see, but 
you know, in your mind, how long until this becomes self-sustaining if those government subsidies were no longer in place? Is this two years, five years? And again, we're crystal. That's a crystal. This is a crystal ball question. I realize. So, so on the side, we, we don't. Uh, when I say subsidies, I, I don't mean you know cash to build the plant. What I mean okay. is um, the carbon that we sequester underground. Uh, for every ton that we put underground, we get uh, today we get forty dollars from the government. So that's that's a subsidy that's been in place, I believe it's since uh, 2017. And uh, right now, the it's called the tier system in, in Alberta, for those of, of you who want to dig into it in a little bit more detail. But right now, it's $40 a ton. Uh, mm-hmm. It's projected, well, it will go up to $50 a ton next year. And then um, the Alberta government said when they first rolled it out that they would match the um the carbon tax value right so the carbon tax as okay. we know uh will be going up to 170 dollars per ton by 2030 so we see that that 40 dollars per ton today going up to 170 dollars per ton by 2030. now none of okay, that is le- legislated today but that's what was suggested when they rolled out the program in the first place um do we see Carbon credits going down? Um, I, I don't think so. Uh, I think okay. even with a change in, in government at the federal level uh, or the provincial level, I can't see, you know, because of the ESG pressure uh, from yes. international groups, I can't see that going down. Uh, I can certainly see that revenue stream, revenue stream going up. Right Now, whether it goes up to $170 per ton by 2030, I, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I can't see it going down or being eliminated. Um, there's just too much pressure, you know, with the new U.S. Um, parliament, or not parliaments, but government in, in power, the Biden administration. I, I think there's mm-hmm. more pressure on Canada than ever to uh, to increase those carbon credits so that, uh, you know, more groups are incentivized to sequester CO2. I think you made a comment earlier that I appreciated about, you know, talking with the big banks and talking to the large financial institutions. I've had some oil and gas kind of mid-size, see, mid, you know, 30, 50,000 BOE a day companies on talking about how all of a sudden in the last few years, they've become persona non grata to the big financial institutions. And all of a sudden getting that institutional money has been very difficult because of the ESG, you know, overlay that's on anything. So to hear the, the role you guys are playing and the more, how much more open they are to having those conversations because of the role you play. Like, I think this has a long way to run for sure. And my limited, my limited perspective, but it's just, I'm really excited about the optimism for our province and how this can become such a viable, and I want to say alternative, but a complement to this powerful resource sector that we've had as things are changing. And that, that genie's out of the bottle in my mind, for sure. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we've been talking with some of the bigger gas, again, no names uh, being mentioned, but we've been them and they're very excited to to partner with us right and and we would buy their natural gas uh right there where they produce it right which which increases the value that they get for it and we would create a long-term offtake agreement let's say 20 25 years right so we would be buying natural gas for them for for two decades plus right so that's that's what's getting them excited they don't have to you know pay for transportation of the of natural gas you know across canada or wherever wherever the uh, the uh, sales point is. So uh, we can come in, set up our plant, and uh, buy their inexpensive natural gas. Uh, they can make a little bit more money off of it um, for the long term, get in at a set price. And then we can create uh, blue hydrogen, right, and sell it to uh, the end users in that area. Uh, so that's one of the things, you know, stranded gas, we're... we're you know, we've got a really good plan to uh, to help those producers out um, and, and monetize that uh, stranded gas asset. I appreciate the taking something like natural gas that was, you know, better on the echelon of, of kind of pollution and pollutants and things like that and taking and just adding another step to the process and sounding like I'm oversimplifying it and turning it into a net positive across the board. Uh, you talked about the large petrochemical facilities, the companies that are going to use this as their feedstock and that sort of thing. Maybe something that I think maybe we can all relate to a little bit more is the vehicles we see driving by us on the highway and the roads. And so curious about that shift and what that looks like. And, you know, a bolt on the end of that, the EV conversation that's, you know, very popular right now and very trendy but just curious like what you guys what you guys see in terms of the requirement for large fleets and industrial based transportation whether it's forklifts or trucks on the road to switch to hydrogen and then how does that play into this whole electric vehicle race that's running 100 mile an hour right now 
Yeah, great, uh, great pickup, Tyler. It's uh, <laughs> it's always a, an interesting topic for sure. So, you know, fuel cells uh, and hydrogen technology is already here. It's not a science project. It's already here in existence. You know, there's 6,000 vehicles out in California moving around on 75, you know, hydrogen fueling stations. There's a dozen or so already out in BC with another dozen planned with uh, the help of various government infrastructure programs. You know, and it's more of that infrastructure coming across Canada. Yes, the EV, you know, infrastructure is already mature and it's in existence. And it, for it, that EV market to grow and develop, you need to upgrade and update the grid system and the amount of um, charging requirements that are there for a fleet where hydrogen is totally different, right? It, the, the charging time for an EV vehicle is at least an hour to an hour and a half, if not greater, based on the battery's amount to get to that 80% charge, where hydrogen fuel cell charging uh, is basically the same amount of time for gasoline and diesel, you know, that it would take to fuel your okay. car. So time savings, uh, everybody's always about how much time does it save me, right? So fueling time for hydrogen is exactly the same as gasoline and diesel, but the only difference is it's zero emissions. So everything that comes out the pipe is just water vapor from a hydrogen fuel cell. So the, the charging time is not there. You can uh, asset utilization, zero emissions, and the carbon footprint is, is very, very small. So the infrastructure is coming. It's, uh, it's coming. But a, a lot of upsides that, again, this isn't a battle of who's better or who's worse, it's just, but it's, it's different. And we, we look at, there's always, when you look at any technology, there's usually a bunch that show up and then there's something that emerges as a leader, whether it's, you know, in sure. any type of consumer technology or whatever the case. What about the infamous question around range? Because, you know, as someone who doesn't have an EV, an electric vehicle, and there's always that, well, geez, what if I can't find a phone? And I know some of that's misplaced, but it is that fear. I'm very comfortable with putting gasoline in my vehicle. I've been doing it for 40 years or whatever the case may be. When it talks about a hydrogen vehicle, if you put two side by side, is it similar in range? And maybe if I'm asking you guys to push outside your, your expertise, but just curious, when rubber meets the road, literally, how far can I go on a, on, on a tank? Of for sure. Yeah, for sure. Good question. And really, that depends on the manufacturer, but it is basically similar to, again, a gasoline and diesel. So how far can you go on a gasoline and diesel vehicle? How big is the tank? Similar to a hydrogen fuel cell, the more tanks you can add, typically the range targets by the manufacturers today are exactly the same as a as a gasoline and diesel, which is, as we all know, is a little bit greater than the EV. Uh, and it also works well in those minus 40. We all know the climate that we live in. You know, when we get up to that minus 40 temperatures above their EV the energy efficiency in those batteries is greatly reduced at the colder temperatures. Batteries don't like cold. Yeah, absolutely. exactly. Hydrogen, don't worry about that. It's it's totally fine. They've all got cold weather packages that they can put on the vehicles to operate in those lower temperatures. So, and the range is not decreased by that lower minus temperatures as well. So they're, mm -hmm. they kind of uh, benefit a little bit than the EV world that way. And if you take a regular... Uh Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, George. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Tyler. Uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, for heavy-duty vehicles like um, tractor-trailer units, right, that that weigh a lot, they haul a lot of load. Um, if you were to um, to use batteries to run those tractor-trailer units and haul, uh, you know, something that's relatively heavy, you would have to have um, half the weight of what you were hauling would be uh, just for battery batteries, power, right? So. So the batteries, you know, there's just not enough room, um, you know, to haul heavy loads. So we think that's where uh, hydrogen will will displace a lot of diesel today, uh, is on that heavy duty vehicle um, side of things. And we're also, you know, a CP is doing a lot of work on uh, on on rail engines, um, converting their trains uh, to hydrogen powered trains. Um, Interesting industry, the freight industry uh, that you know. Are, are, they're doing a lot of work on uh, on using uh, what's called ammonia um, for power, and ammonia is just a, it's it's derived from hydrogen plus nitrogen, but essentially it's it's a hydrogen energy carrier. Uh, so there, there's lots of research going into um, how hydrogen can be used for big vehicles, right? There's there's actually two airplanes now uh, on the planet that use hydrogen to fly around. Um, they're small craft, right? But, uh, yeah, you know, there's been a, ask how big that's super interesting. I hadn't heard that. <laughs> yeah. This, I, I believe, I believe one of them is a Piper. So just, uh, what is that? A, a four passenger plane. Uh, but needless to say, there's a lot of research going in duty with hydrogen versus, um, jet fuel is it's a lot lighter, right? And hydrogen is what's used in, in, um, spacecraft, right? For rocket launches and that sort of thing, because it's so light, uh, so that's one of the the beauties of hydrogen is uh, you know there's not a lot of weight to it so you're not 
um, you know, burning energy to uh, to transport stuff, uh, to transport the fuel that you're, you're you know, you're using just to, to deal to with power the trucks. Yeah, yeah, when you're, yeah. The bike's always a little more sluggish when it's got a full tank of fuel on it, yeah, versus when it's almost empty. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We got to work in motorcycles to do this conversation. So if I took a regular transport vehicle, you know, something that's going up and down the highway between Calgary and Edmonton, and we'll get into the Calgary Edmonton story here in a second, uh, is do I have to retrofit everything? Like, can I take something that was burning burning diesel and convert it? Is it a fairly arduous process? Just really understanding again the nuts and bolts of like how do you how do you get this happening? Yeah, good question, Tyler. So there are two different complete setups. There are technologies that you can slipstream okay. hydrogen into diesel fuel. There's some technologies out in the marketplace today but very on a small scale. But what we're talking about, I think, is more the fuel cell, which is a complete retrofit. So a a different vehicle that uses similar traction motors uh, that you would see in an EV, but it has basically a fuel cell. Uh, That fuel cell takes hydrogen fuel, runs it across, generates power into a small battery, and then that electricity is basically put to the traction motor. So oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I, and the I, only I, thing I it, so. that comes out the pipe is the water vapor after the fuel cell is mixed with oxygen and the hydrogen fuel itself. So again, small footprint, zero emissions, you know, uh, and a great range as well. So okay, whether it, there's so a few, I had this yeah. internal combustion engine mind like view in my mind, but no, it's much more similar to the EV. We're just changing the battery for the fuel cell. Not this is not we're not combusting. Okay, perfect. Sorry, my brain just yeah. went to simply what I knew, which is no, how a for sure. Engine great, works. Yeah. great question. And there is new emerging technologies that I just read as well. Toyota just came out with a new brand new engine that runs as an internal combustion combustion engine, but basically runs off uh, liquid hydrogen. So it's a complete new emerging these emerging technologies from the major manufacturers is really starting to change the way we see hydrogen, the way we use it from just a straight fuel cell to maybe an internal combustion to any of those other forms. Again, zero emissions. So, so, so like I, I, George, you said very clearly, we're in our infancy. So you're going to start to see more and more of those innovations come out now that this, this, this fuel supply is becoming more readily available and there's an infrastructure there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, you know, on the vehicle side, the efficiency side, the hydrogen vehicles are more efficient. They don't have to turn transmissions and, and, uh, you know, um, a lot of a lot of additional things, fans and pumps and and radiator pumps, Mm -hmm. water pumps, that sort of stuff. Right. They're electric motors. So so the maintenance cost with electrical vehicles is is much lower than than, uh, you you would have on a on a typical combustion engine. Right. So that's one of the other benefits. And then we we talked about incentives for people to switch over. And one of the big incentives that I didn't talk about yet is the clean fuel standard. So the clean fuel standard is coming into effect uh, next year. And uh, it's only on liquid fuels, so diesel, gasoline, uh, that sort of, uh, of fuel. It's not on natural gas um, yet, anyway. Uh, and that clean fuel standard will impose an additional cost of up to $350 per ton of CO2 emitted. So that's significant. Um, that That's a lot. Now, it wouldn't be on, on all of the fuel that's consumed. It would be on a portion, a small portion of the fuel that's consumed. But it's yet another incentive, right, for people to switch over and, and switch away from, from liquid fuels. And we're here to help with that. We can blend our, um, you know, I, we, we talked a little bit about it, but we can also blend hydrogen into uh, right uh, vehicles. Um, we can retrofit uh, a small hydrogen tank into an existing combustion engine and blend hydrogen into diesel fuel. Uh, to reduce that uh, those emissions, right, and that, that will help get around the clean fuel standard costs that are uh, going to be in place next year. I was just uh, CBC this morning had some. They were talking briefly about the clean fuel standard. The what I heard or the the, the number that jumped out at me would potentially fifty sixty cents you know, a per gallon increase in cost, like for the average consumer, like the numbers that get you when you're listening to the radio in the morning, when you're half paying attention, you're like, wait, did you just say 60% increase in fuel costs on top of the fuel costs that have already kind of come back up and maybe surpassed where they were this time where the last year? Hey, 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 everybody, they don't go back down just in, just in case anyone's been paying attention over the That's last right. 20 years. That's so, right. Yeah. There's, there, there's no such thing as a, a temporary tax, is there? Yeah, no, that yes. No, trust me, trust me, we'll take it out. We'll take it out once all this settles out. Yeah. The GST was one of those ideas too, wasn't it? But yeah, and we see you see far, some yeah. of that switch coming too, right? You see from the Azitech mm-hmm. project here in Alberta that you know from the heavy haulers, uh, sixty-five ton. Uh, you're starting to see a bit of that that wave coming. You're seeing New Holland mm-hmm. out in Europe has got a hydrogen fuel cell tractor. You know, so the switch is out there that is coming, uh, and that wave is is going to be here. So for us, 
we're uh, well positioned to be uh, providing that that renewable blue hydrogen um, to, to the market. So. Well, I certainly appreciate the industrial side of transportation, like tractors, uh, trucks. They have very set routes. You can plan it out. Like it's it's a much more of a financial exercise. Sometimes as a consumer, oh, you maybe save a penny here, save a penny there. I might go on vacation here. I might drive there. But when it comes to the industrial world, those are very set, almost regimented uses for these vehicles. Like we have a warehouse. We need X amount of forklifts. We have a charging station. It's all timed out and we can shave moments off our day. At the end of the year, boom, that's hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. I really appreciate where I could see, because there it is much more of a series of less personal decisions or what you believe in. It's like, well, we ran the numbers and it works better. So there we go. Let's, let's make, let's make the shift. <laughs> exactly. And you already see that, you know, whether it's Walmart using hydrogen forklifts, whether it's the entire Amazon distribution network using hydrogen forklifts, you know, there's a significant difference between propane and EV battery forklifts versus hydrogen fuel cells. Okay. So. Interesting. Cause propane has been the common use for obviously cause you're inside. So you have emissions problems. You can't be running a combustion engine in a warehouse that would end badly for everyone. Um, so if I'm, <laughs> I'm running a fleet. I hear this. I'm like, you know what? I want to make the change. I reach out to you guys and I call up Kenworth or Peterbilt tomorrow or International or one of those guys and say, I want to buy a fleet of 50 vehicles that are focused on hydrogen because you know we've got a partner here in Calgary that's built this infrastructure. Could I buy them? Can I go out and commercially purchase those vehicles tomorrow? Yeah, so great question. So the 65-ton tractor units are not available today and that's where the Azitech project is really starting to okay. emerge that. But there's other partners that we've been uh, obviously in discussion with like uh, Hyzon who make uh, tractors mm -hmm. in existence today for 45 ton and less applications. So depending on the application, whether that's an in-city uh, refuse uh, garbage uh, hauler yep. or whether it's for shunting in different intermodals or whether it's for you mm -hmm. know various kind of uh, applications for that 45 ton and under, uh, these would be a perfect fit. And you can take you know capital today and go buy a Hyzon tractor today that's in the market today. So and then for yard fueling services, you know, that's all stuff that we would be happy to provide for that client as well, as well as a, you know, a fuel that's basically on almost on diesel parity. So again, depending on where that transportation costs and the rest of it to get that molecule there, set up that infrastructure in yard, all that stuff is not a science project. It's in the market today yeah, that we I can help bring that. that client. So. I really like the comparison of, you know, it's 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 the same amount of time as fueling you pulling up to the pumps or the fuel truck shows up and fuels. But that literally would it be just the just the hydrogen truck is here and it's going to fuel up these vehicles for any kind of remote locations? Is it like is it as is am I looking at it as as clear as that? <laughs> yes, exactly. Similar to what you would see for your propane tank, similar to a compressed okay. tank that you would see in the yard. Exact yep. filling up on a dispenser, nothing that's, you know, different and complicated to use. There's existing retail hydrogen fueling stations that you can fill, you know, a vehicle at today would so that the technology is out there and you can, you know, use it. So depending on the routings and the supply chain, you know, what they're looking at for that application, uh, there's a wide variety. Just reach out to, to us to talk and ask those kind of key questions is what we're here to help with. So. And what I'm hearing again, just from the outside, putting my marketing business guy hat on, it sounds like you guys are also in a very big place of like, you guys are also very consultative on this. It doesn't feel like I'm going to reach out to you guys and buy package A, package B, package C. These are a lot of individual use cases. This is new. So I'm assuming you guys are having a lot of conversations that help guide people along this journey. Because yeah, I heard about it. I'm interested, but nobody's here as an expert in this. We need you to kind of consult. So I'm assuming you guys are living in that very consultative space, especially as you get this thing up and running. Is that, that, is that what's the, how's, how's, how's the model works? Yeah, absolutely, Tyler. We, we've got uh, right now. We've got three uh, advisors to the company, and um, one of them brings a lot of marketing experience to the company. One of them brings carbon sequestration experience to the company, and one of them brings operational experience to the company. We've got a chemical process engineer who has over fifteen years of experience on, on generating hydrogen. Um, we're talking to manufacturers, right? As Jason mentioned. Uh, that build vehicles. Um, we're talking with the fuel cell manufacturers. Um, we're, we're talking with groups that own disposal rights that we've secured uh, across the province. Um, so yeah, a lot of different parties involved. Uh, we've got partners who help us on the carbon credit side of things to, uh, to audit everything and make sure that we get the credits that we intend on getting. Um, so we, we've got a lot of different uh, groups involved. And and really, to, to bring out a new energy form, <laughs> you've got to have a lot of groups involved, right? You can't just do it on your own. 
and you know we 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 want to make hydrogen the next uh, energy um, source in Alberta. I think you know we've got everything we need. We've been injecting CO two underground for literally decades, so we know how to do that. Um, and uh, we we need a lot of of help, and we need a lot of of momentum, right? So we encourage other groups to to look into hydrogen, uh, whether it's through Spectrum H two or not, uh, because we do think that it's uh, it's eventually going to replace uh, a lot of the existing fuels that we use today. Um, so yeah, it, it's a lot of moving parts, a lot of partnerships uh, that we've developed already, and uh, th- that's what we need to to roll out hydrogen. I appreciate from an economic perspective, you look at, you know, the energy sector and how many, you know, the hub, the the multiple hubs and spokes that that created and the service companies and the people that just focused on a certain area. What I'm hearing you talk about from an economic perspective is there's huge amount of opportunities. You guys are coming in as a bit of an umbrella and looking at it all because you're trying to get it up and going. So like any sector, the more people that get involved, the bigger it's going to get. But I also hear a huge amount of opportunity in Alberta thinking about our economy of someone could specialize in any one of these buckets and still have a full bucket. And that to me is very exciting for the future of where we're going as a province because we don't need to employ a couple hundred people. We need to employ thousands of people in terms of where our demand is in our province of these very talented, skilled individuals that's, that were kind of sold a bill of goods that the energy sector was going to provide and it, things have changed. So to me, this feels very positive from the net impact, not only on the environment, but on our people. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we've got uh, experts out there um, on on the engineering side who on on the midstream side who have been running plants for decades um, on the geology side who have been studying the rocks in Alberta for literally decades as as I have right mm-hmm. um, and we've got uh, you know pipeline side we've got that all handled so so we've got the expertise we've got amazing people out there who are knowledgeable on all these different fields right it's just a matter of, of I guess, redirecting those resources, right, uh, into a slightly different approach. So it's all the same skill sets, uh, but a different product, right? Essentially, that's... that's I appreciate that. That that, that has a sense of realism to it. Versus we're going to be something completely different and change everything. And, you know, I've heard, heard a guest recently said, you know, we spent a lot of years in, like from the tech sector talking about being Silicon Valley or talking about being somewhere else. Because only in the last couple of years, we're actually talking about being Calgary. And, you know, I, I really like that, the way that kind of showed up for me. And hearing you talk, this is capitalizing on everything that we have. Curious, I'm thinking of everything we're talking about from a provincial perspective, because we're not on an island. But this is a, you know, Collisions YYC. So it is Calgary-based. So when you look at the province, when it comes to where we're at in Calgary, versus Edmonton versus some of these larger industrial uh, footprints in the north. Is it split up by the province? Are we in this together? Or is there any kind of a dynamic between, and I'm just picking two cities, the big ones, Calgary and Edmonton, but is there any parts of the, of the province that are maybe better positioned or embracing this different? Or what's kind of happening on that front? Yeah, I would say yes, absolutely. There are different parts that are embracing it uh, faster uh, than you know the Calgary area. Um, and that's because there's a lot of industry up in the Alberta industrial heartland, up to the northeast of Edmonton. Uh, there's a lot of big groups there. Um, you know, Quest is up there, Shell is up there. Um, there's, there's a lot of gray hydrogen being produced in that area. And so it makes sense to for them to have started, I guess, getting the, uh, the capture, the carbon capture ball rolling, if you will. And they have, and, and there's, um, you know, what's called the ACTL pipeline, um, Alberta Carbon Truck Trunk Line, that uh, brings CO2 from um, northeast of Edmonton and the Alberta Industrial Heartland down to a reservoir in the Clive area. And so they, they've got a pipeline um, for CO2 and disposal of the CO2 in Clive. So they, they've got a head start area. Uh, big industrial area and you know they can do things uh, in that area that's uh, without as much I guess resistance as as, you know there may be around Calgary having said that our approach is not uh, you know mega sized uh, industrial approach it's smaller it's a hub and spoke approach where we we build a small hub to fit the needs of the industrial user adjacent to our, our land and then we distribute from that hub so we've got much smaller generating plants that are in, in, a, in various hubs across southern Alberta. Um, but that's our focus. We don't have the, you know, I think the um, the pipeline, uh, I forget the exact cost, but I think that whole project was $1.2 billion, right? And we don't have that type of capital. We have lots of capital, but not at that level. Yep, so yep. we're doing things at a bit of a smaller scale uh, using hub and spoke approach uh, versus a, a big mega industrial approach. 
which also allows it to, to have more penetration across a broader geographic area is what I'm hearing from Jason's perspective. Exactly. We're not looking at one area. We're looking at, as I said earlier, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, um, along the corridors, the transportation corridors. And uh, with existing, you know, everything lines up from that vertical integration point of view with existing uh, uh, carbon storage zones uh, beneath the hub, um, of which there are a lot uh, right now. And, and we've secured some of those, so we've got a bit of a head start. Uh, and you know, the fact that the Alberta Industrial Heartland has started this, I think it was, you know, um, they've been capturing CO2 and, and producing blue hydrogen for about six years now. And that's okay. great. You know, the, the Fort Saskatchewan project I talked about where hydrogen is blended into the distribution lines is great because we can follow their lead, right? Uh, they've done a little bit of the research, right? And, and they've, uh, you know, done the commercial testing. And now we can grab that information and, and run with it um, and, and, you know, not have to reinvent the wheel. So that's one of the benefits with, uh, with um, them having a head start, I guess, uh, but I would like to to challenge any of the groups around Calgary, of course, to uh, to catch up and surpass uh, the Edmonton groups, uh, and hopefully we can uh, start sequestering as much or more CO two uh, than uh, what they're sequestering. I appreciate a good challenge and a good uh, like, hey, hey, what what are we doing? But you know, I I did really like what you said about there's such a, and I've had so many guests on talk about that in Alberta there can be a tendency, and these are blanket statements. And maybe I'll get some hate mail, but that's okay. That there's a big tendency to want to be second in this province. There's a lot of risk aversion about being first about trying something. Jason, you said multiple times this is not a science experiment. This is not. Maybe you haven't heard about it, or you're not com- or you don't know about it. But that's not because it isn't established and well documented in terms of safety, in terms of the positive impacts it has. And to hear you, what you said about Fort McLeod? Fort Saskatchewan. Fort Saskatchewan, sorry. Fort Saskatchewan and the fact that like, well, here, let me show you a track record of someone's been doing it for multiple years successfully. That makes maybe signing those those LOIs or those uh, financial documents a little bit easier because you don't feel you're like you're taking that risk. I'm curious, on a high level, um, it's been said, and certainly I would say the last bunch of years, it feels like Alberta's lost control of our narrative in terms of what the rest of the world refers to us as, oh, we're doing all these bad things, and you know the ESG and the social license to operate. It feels like this is a new story that, you know, I don't know, I'm just thinking from the outside. I know sometimes there's this like almost anti-energy movement, but there's a reality that we need energy to function. We just need to have a broader source of choices that are better for the environment. Do you guys also see this? And maybe this feels like a self-serving question. This feels like this is a much better story to tell at a provincial level to the rest of the world, even the rest of our own country, some of our friends to the east of what we're doing here isn't rape and pillage of the of the environment. This is, feels like a very different storyline to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to get into too much of the politics behind it, but really, um, Alberta's got a chance here to, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, because of our well-trained individuals, right, we've got a lot of talent on the the, uh, engineering, on the geology side. Uh, We've got reservoirs to sequester CO2. We've got inexpensive natural gas. So there's really um, a huge (laughs) advantage here geographically and with respect to expertise. And we need to really seize that opportunity today um, and start generating hydrogen because if we don't, someone else will. And they will be the, they'll plant their flag before Alberta does. So we really need to start moving resources around, getting projects up and running and, and st- you know, start getting blue hydrogen on the market, right? We, we have to capture that market, be an early mover, plant our flag and say, hey, you know, you know, here's, I wouldn't say a new Alberta, but a new direction for Alberta, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's not just with our company, it's with any hydrogen producing company out there, right? You know, we've got to get this energy source uh, available, right, for the manufacturers to power their vehicles and, and for the industrial groups to use um, instead of emitting the um, the gray hydrogen CO2 into the atmosphere. So so really, it's our it's our moment to lose, right? Um, we need to take action mm, now and, and start creating this new industry because if if we don't, if Alberta doesn't, someone else will and, and will be uh, will lag behind. Because once you establish the infrastructure, especially on the retail side where you have to you know set up uh, distribution stations, right? Um, once that infrastructure is established, it's hard to to compete against it, right? Because their costs are already literally in the, in the ground, right? And they've uh, <laughs> they've they control the distribution system. So, 
So, you know, um, everyone out there, um, you know, we, we've got to get this moving. And, and uh, if that takes more incentive from the government, then so be it. But really, we need to uh, to be part of this new energy system. Otherwise, we're going to uh, lose the lead, lose the Alberta advantage. Appreciate the sense of urgency and, you know, plant the flag, moonshot, some of those things, but but not, it's low risk because it's proven, which to me shifts. So maybe we'll close up on this because obviously this takes funding, this takes investors, this takes people believing in the future and agreeing with you that this is the path forward. You've talked about your conversations with larger financial institutions and there's an appetite for this conversation. How has it been talking to investors? You guys clearly are at that phase in the journey and the ability to you know, put some fuel in the tank from a financial perspective. Sorry, we're overusing that analogy today. That how do we, how's that going? Is there some openness? Like, do you feel that the investors are ready to get, to take part in this, whether it's venture capital or all the way up to the, the institutions? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, and I've been involved in raising money in the past through three different companies that I've uh, co-founded okay. and ended up selling to bigger entities. So I do have experience in raising capital and, and I'll tell you what, um, Raising capital for hydrogen has been very, very uh, seamless, let's say. Uh, We did raise a blind pool financing that was oversubscribed. So um, people came in, they they heard our story, they evaluated us, they assessed us, and they said, yeah, this this seems to work out, and, and they gave us money. Um, and that money is, you know, covering our, our GNA and some of our expensive expenses on the design and engineering side. Uh, so, and we've got two major banks uh, in Canada that are backing us as well. They're willing to uh, to invest in us. So there is a lot of uh, a lot of excitement. Uh, the sector is very hot, and not just in in with Spectrum H two, but with a lot of groups. Uh, there's been a lot of raises that were oversubscribed. So investors who wanted to invest um, were asked, you know, or told not to because they didn't have enough room. So, uh, and, and you know, to the order of four to ten times oversubscribed. So that that's a lot of money that's rejected. That, that gives right? you a really good, good so, sense of the sentiment out there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and uh, and there's a lot of government support, right, uh, as well. So. The wind is changing, um, and it's it's in support. Uh, it's always great to have a, a macro tailwind, right, to uh, to help you along the the pathway. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a, a very refreshing change uh, when people want to give you money uh, because you're doing something <laughs> yes. on these on the CO two sequestration and hydrogen specifically, blue hydrogen side of things. So yeah, it's it's been a, a nice change from you know my past financial raises and, and difficulty in getting some um, with past companies. Well, we talk about in the, in our, and when we do brand strategy for companies, we talk about uh, what's happening culturally. And a lot of people go, oh, you mean our culture? I said, no, what's happening culturally out there in the world? Because as a company or as a brand, the more you can ride that wave versus trying, it's really expensive to create a cultural change. But if you can ride one that's happening already, the, like you said, all of a sudden you get a four to six to 10 times oversubscribed. That's a, that's a set a lot about, you know, I don't want to overuse, oversimplify right place at the right time, but there's already a belief that's out there. And if you guys are able to go, oh, hey, by the way, this is the offering that we have that fits right into this trend that's happening for quote unquote, all the right reasons. That's, that's, it gives me a lot of optimism of this being the road ahead. Uh, it's a very good. This is a good conversation, guys. You got me really, uh, I'm positive. I'm bullish on Alberta anyways. This gives me a whole nother set of filters of like, it's good to be bullish, but you still need to know what you're bullish about. <laughs> Blind optimism, you know, maybe makes for a, makes for a smile, but what's really going to move the needle. So I really appreciate everything you guys shared today. Any, any last words or any thoughts? First of all, how do people get a hold of you? How do they participate? Are you looking for people to join the team? Clearly looking for funding probably here in the future. What's uh, what do you lay, lay it out? <laughs> Yeah, I would say, uh, go ahead, George. Go ahead. I was going to say, I would say definitely reach out to us on our uh, on our uh, website, so spectrumh2.ca. You can check us out there and check out the rest of the team. Uh, and if anybody's curious or would like to know more, obviously, about uh, what we can provide to our clients, whether that's, you know, CO2 flue gas sequestration, whether it's blue high hydrogen adoption or uses, uh, don't be afraid to reach out and ask those key kind of questions because there's potentially a fit for various uh, groups out there, whether it's industrial heating, fuel cell, yard fleets, any of that kind of stuff. So we can help walk through all those kind of conversations and questions. Well, that's fantastic. And, and well, well, on that. So he, he's the, the guru on the marketing side. Um, and, and then, you know, we just hired uh, another few individuals. So we're now up to, I believe it's nine people at the company 
Um, and, and we're working towards our first LOI, which would essentially allow us to go into our second raise. And then the intent is to uh, to go public uh, very shortly here uh, and do a bigger raise uh, to support some of our uh, low-risk projects. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely have a look at our website. Uh, feel free to, t- to reach out to uh, Jason or myself anytime. And uh, yeah, we're excited. It, it's a big shift, um, but we think that uh, Alberta could lead uh, that shift, um, and not just in Canada, but in North America. Um, you know, we're seeing hydrogen prices in the U.S. that are extremely high, and we can essentially undercut that market by about 60%, uh, including transportation down to that area. That's a compelling proposition unto itself. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So, And it's because of that inexpensive uh, natural gas, you know, sequestration zones and, and know-how, know-how, right? The Alberta advantage to the, the people in Alberta. So, yeah, that's, that's a, it's a huge industry that's just getting started off yeah, part of it. Well, gentlemen, thank you for the work that you're doing. I'm incredibly optimistic about this as a play for Alberta right now and for because all the boxes are, are there. How do we capitalize on it? But thank you guys for coming on today. Thanks for your candor. Thanks for willingness to get into the weeds of, you know, from everything from the colors to the realities of, of what it means to actually have a vehicle that functions this way. And looking forward to having you guys. I feel this there's a part two coming down the road here as things as things as things evolve. But congratulations on the work you've done so far. And thanks for a great conversation today, gentlemen. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Helen.